Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And some of you might know this story. He invites many different people to come. But everyone who comes, or who's invited, sorry, has an excuse as to why they're not going to come. I mean, if you can imagine that, it is not the biggest event of the day or the week or the century. It is the biggest event of eternity. It's bigger than the Super Bowl or the wedding of British royals. And to be invited and yet to say, no, I, I think I have something better. I, I don't really need to go. That just wouldn't happen. You can't even fathom such a thing. Well, this does happen. And according to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, this invitation to this event looks like this. It actually comes with three words. The word come in verses 35 through 39. The word see in verses 35 through 49 as well, uh, 39. And then lastly, follow in verses 40 through 42. So we'll look at those three verbs to sort of give us this overview of this invitation that remarkably people say, I don't want to be a part of that. So first we look at the verb come in verses 35 to 39. I'll read that again. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And again, we spent a lot of time talking about that last week, so I won't really focus on that. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Jesus asked these first disciples that he calls, what are you seeking? And it's literally the question, what do you want? I mean, that's what Jesus is asking directly, very directly, actually. So I can imagine them sort of following, maybe from a distance, maybe a little uncertain as to whether they should follow. And Jesus just doesn't allow someone to follow him with that type of half-heartedness. Because when you try to do that, he just comes in uh, point blank to say, what do you want? Uh, last, a couple of weeks ago, Sung addressed the guys at the men's breakfast, and he talked about the idea of following with one toe in and nine toes out. <laughs> I mean, just to have that 
image in my mind, how, how one can do that, you know, but yet metaphorically, that is how so many people follow Jesus. One toe in, nine toes out. In other words, you follow Jesus on your own terms, in your own way, at your own timing. And when you do that, Jesus will not let you do that. He comes in and asks very bluntly to you, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want comfort? Do you want notoriety? Do you want to look like a Christian? Do you want to have it all? You want to follow Christ in name only, but in reality, you're just following what you want ultimately. Do you want your children to be safe? Do you want health, wealth? Do you want only the promises that sound so good in scripture, but in reality, it, there's challenges, it's trials. What do you want? And Jesus is going to ask not just those two disciples, but essentially, if you read the New Testament, the gospels, he regularly asks that question to anyone who follows him, to all Christians. What do you really want with your heart, with your life? The challenge for us is that we can't hide our answer from him. Because we can say, oh, we want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you will go. But he knows what's deep in our souls. And even though we say something, but we, in our hearts, want something differently, we just can't hide that from him. See, the thing is, he already knows what you want. <laughs> That's the challenge of having Jesus talk to you, confront you is that he already knows what you desire. So if you try to fake him out in some way, it just doesn't work. The rich young ruler, if you can recall, was that type of person. I mean, Jesus already knew what his greatest struggle was, that he loved money. And so when this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I do so many good things, I tithe, I obey the law, I care for the poor. And Jesus says, wow, you do so many great things. How about you do this one more thing and then you can be my disciple. And he says, what is it? Because he's thinking, I got it done already. And he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. And the man just is stunned because he realizes, oh, that's one thing I cannot give up. And so scripture says that he walks away sad. And that's the thing about Jesus is that he knows what is that one thing that you have in your heart that says, don't touch that, Lord. I'll give everything, but not this one thing. I think we saw a little bit of it during COVID. There was so much uncertainty, big questions about safety. And the question then remained, will you follow Christ even over your own personal safety? And many of you and me would say, yes, I definitely will. Some actually couldn't. But maybe, would you follow Christ over your children's personal safety? Even if it led to their death, would you still follow Christ? Would you follow Christ if you lost your house, your career, your friendships, your spouse? Really hard questions. And Jesus is asking that question to his disciples, and his disciples are not just the 12 disciples. It's 
anyone who follows Christ. If you say, I want to follow Jesus, then get ready for Jesus to ask you, what do you want from me? Because if you want prosperity and health and comfort and career success and a really nice spouse and um, everything to be set rightly before you, then like the rich young ruler, you probably will walk away sad because you'll realize that he never promises those things. There's a, a, a shift in the scene. It's actually quite strange because he asks the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? And look at the disciples' response. They, they ask, where are you staying? I mean, doesn't that sound odd to you? If Jesus is saying, what do you want? And their response is, where are you staying? That just is such a, a sudden turn. And God asks, why? Why did they do that? I, I sort of imagine there's all these guesses. One is, they were so caught off guard by the question that they just blurted out what was on the top of their mind. Where are you staying? Uh, it's not really sure, but something of their hearts just sort of spoke. But what's very interesting about their question is that even though, and really from the context, it really seems like they're not asking anything more than G literally where Jesus is physically staying. But the word stay is a word that is, again, used throughout the Gospel of John quite often. It's the same word that we have the English translation of remain and abide. So talked about how that one word is a theme throughout the Gospel of John, stay, remain, abide. And what's poignant about that is that in John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus abides with believers. He stays. So Really, even though it was a physical question, it had a spiritual reality from Jesus' perspective because his point was, if you follow me, I will abide in you. And you see this, especially in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. And so when the disciples, they're saying, where are you staying? His answer in the gospel of John is, I'm staying with you. I will never let you go. See, in this world, there are all these promises of if you join a club, maybe you're in college, and you think, I got to join a club. One of the great challenges, and for those of us who can recall back to your collegiate days, when you leave home as a now senior in high school and you go to college, one of the first great challenges is making friendships, relationships, right? And so the way you deal with the sudden, you know, burst of homesickness or loneliness is to join clubs, campus ministries, talk to a zillion people. You sort of go through this friending stage and it's all for the sake of saying, I don't want to be alone. I don't want to feel that pang. And that sense of loneliness keeps on going from college, post-college, to your first days where you're living alone, perhaps, in your career. You're trying to build friendships, relationships. Then you join a church. Maybe this is your first time at this church, and you don't know anyone. You're thinking, I feel alone. And that just keeps on going. We get married because we maybe it is not good for man to be alone. So that sense is going. And... Jesus' promise is that if you follow me, you will never be alone. I will abide in you. 
I will stay with you. I will never forsake you. I'm right by your side. And so the invitation to that is where Jesus says, come, come and see. It's a gracious invitation. It's a word that Jesus is using constantly. In Matthew chapter 11, he says in verse 28, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. So there's many reasons that we give as excuses as to why I shouldn't come, but in every way we should desire to come because he wants to abide in you. He wants to rest in you. He wants to be that person, as Proverbs 18.24 says, is closer than a brother, closer than a sister, a friend, a parent. To follow Jesus, though, is not merely thinking about him. You have to move. You have to act. You have to not follow from afar, but you have to decide. As the you know, the song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. And that means by going, by listening, and by attending, and by moving, and not just simply saying passively, well, I'll take in words. But the question is, how do you do that? What does that look like? That's where we get to the next verb, C, in verses 35 to 39. It sort of progresses you Come, you act, by, and then you see. Jesus says in verse 39, come and you will see. And notice the, the seeing is future tense. And it's not just future tense. It's, it sort of has this sense that this will happen. It's not you might see. It's you will see. There's an assurance to it. So in other words, the invitation is set, but when God works, he actually does the working so that you will definitively see. It's not that he gives you the possibility of seeing, it's that you definitively will see. And that really shows us sort of this double-sided coin, you might say, of this invitation. On the one hand, we are responsible for mobilizing, for acting, for moving, for deciding, for uh, willfully choosing to say, I want to follow Christ. But on the other side is also in operation, God's sovereign spirit to be the one who definitively, when he works, he opens your eyes. So what's the implication of that? One is that when you extend this invitation or when you receive it, um, you don't have to worry about your part in it. And I think that's an incredible freedom for those of us who have perhaps shared the gospel with loved ones, friends, strangers, anyone. Sometimes there is this idea that, okay, I have to have a certain amount of theological knowledge. I have to be articulate. I have to be able to defend the faith. And all when that is put together, then I can share with my uncle at Thanksgiving about who Jesus is. When you're in that place, you probably will never share the gospel because you'll never feel ready, ready enough. But when we look at this promise is that when you invite, come, when Jesus does this, the promise is you will see this is going to happen because God is the one who does the work and it's not dependent on your skill set. 
on how well-versed you are and how many verses of the Bible you've memorized. It's just invite. Send out that invitation. Tell people. Show people. Here's the promise that Jesus gives in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So that verse has, again, those two sides. On the one hand, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father has, even before the beginning of time, according to Ephesians 1, has already given to the Son everyone who would follow him. That's assurance. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's people will turn to him. But look at the second part. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So there has to be then also a response of people. And both of those things are concurrently happening at the same time. That is that God is sovereignly moving to change hearts and nothing will thwart his plan. On the other side, whosoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved and both happen. It means that we don't come and see because suddenly the gospel made sense to us logically. It just doesn't happen that way. We don't reason ourselves to faith and you don't figure him out finally. And this is actually very important for us as parents because I do think that sometimes we have this idea that, well, if I teach the Bible and there's an equation and if I raise them in a Christian home and if I bring them to church every Sunday, automatically they're going to be born again. But I can tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, there are many, many people who are Christian in name only, but not born again. And there's a big difference. Ask someone the question. If you ask a question, are you a Christian? Many will say yes. If you say, are you born again? Many of those people who said yes will say, no, I'm not born again. I don't even know what that means. And so recognize that I'm not going to cause someone to turn to Christ because I have raised them in a Christian family. You don't figure out what it means to, uh, to believe in Jesus, and you don't come to faith by being in a Christian home. Again, there is two sides. It's not to say that there's no blessing or benefit to teaching God's word to your children, to rearing them in the Lord. But to think that that in and of itself saves them is a terrible mistake, a dangerous one. I really like the way theologian Leon Morris puts it. He says, people do not come to Christ because it seems a good idea to them. It never does seem a good idea to sinful people. Apart from a divine work in their souls, people remain more or less contentedly in their sins. And I think he's spot on. There has to be the work of the Holy Spirit to do the change of the heart. Because by nature, I am content with who I am. And sin is not just about those terrible sins that we think about in murder, adultery, thievery. Those are bad sins, but just as equally damning are what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins, worry, anger, envy. Um, these are things that are just as heinous before the Lord. Uniquely different, 
but they're still leading us away from Christ. And they actually are the bridge towards a very dark soul. So the problem and the challenge of the sinful person of that huge range of sin is that they're content with it. Try to cause someone who is content to living the way they are. And by the way, that's pretty much most of society. You just won't turn to Christ based solely on the reasonability of someone else's um, talk or language. And if you ever talk to someone who's never heard the gospel before and knows nothing about Christianity, it can sound utterly foolish to such a person. I don't know if any of you have ever encountered Mormons. They were very, I think for me, I would say a very strange worldview. They're, they believe certain types of clothing, often referred to as magic underwear, by the, derogatorily by non-Mormons, it protects them against spiritual attack. So they never, when they, they hide it from everyone, and they rarely wash it. They do every once in a while, but it's, it's given to them at the temple in Utah, and then they wear it for the rest of their lives. And if you have Mormon friends, you'll never see it. If you ask them to see it, they will not show you. They also believe that um, Elohim is the God of this world. He married Mary and had a son named Jesus. And so if we as become a Mormon, then we also will be able to inhabit our own world eventually when we die and become a god over a different world. Now, for those of you who know, Mormons are really great at science fiction, actually. They like Orson Scott Card and Ender's Game and um, Jeff Wheeler and the whole King Fountain series. Have you ever read any of those? And Mormons are really good at science fiction because it sounds like science fiction what they actually believe. And when I hear that, I think, you guys are crazy, like magic underwear, and you get your own, you know, and then when you go to the temple, you have all these little token handshakes in Utah. This is really true, and behind a curtain. And you have to go and give certain handshakes, and that lets you into the back door, and you can now be baptized, baptizing the dead. And all, it just, the list is endless. So I hear that, and I go, I would never believe that. That's just kooky, crazy. Well, that's how non-Christians think about Christianity. So do you really think that when you try to talk to someone who doesn't believe in Christ and try to prove the resurrection and try to prove like we're eating the body and blood of Christ, at least even symbolically, and we talk about blood all the time, and they're going to go, you guys are nuts. How am I ever going to convince someone to believe in Jesus by my own intellect and willpower? That doesn't make sense. So we should never be surprised. It's people do not come to Christ because it seems a good idea to them. Theologian D.A. Carson puts it this way. Jesus' confidence does not rest in the potential for positive response amongst well-meaning people. Far from it, his confidence is in his father to bring to pass the father's redemptive purposes. How many of us share the gospel with somebody because we think, oh, they're going to respond well to this. And then when they don't, we get disappointed. Instead, it should be, I know this is going to, they're not going to receive this. Like, that should make sense to us completely. They're, there's no way they're going to receive what I'm saying. 
Jesus' confidence, though, does not rest in the potential for positive response, but rather because he just trusts the Father that if it's his will, it will come to pass. That's assurance and peace. That means that I don't have to wait upon possibly my words convincing someone. I'm totally confident, though, if God wants this to come to pass, it will, and I trust him. And so the seeing is only possible. If you see today, and I'm talking not just literally, physically, but spiritually, if you see Christ and you adore him, if Christmas is more than just a bunch of Christmas melodies, Santa Claus, but it's actually this wonderful picture of the word becoming flesh. If that is what it means to you, it's because the Holy Spirit did a supernatural work of changing that which, what you once believed where you were dead in your trespasses, you're now made alive in Christ. And you really see that he's the one who did that. And the only way that happened is the spirit of God doing that work. It's not because someone taught you the Bible well. When that is the case, then you can trust him. But it also means that another implication of this is that prayer is a significant part of what we as believers do in the process of sharing and proclaiming Christ. I know many of you have family members who don't know the Lord. And we say so often, pray for them, consistently pray for them. But how often do we really pray for them? And maybe you pray one year. And after one year, you think, it doesn't work. Ah, oh, they're too hard. They'll never get it. And then maybe you start thinking, I need to read more books on apologetics because they have these really tough questions. I need to answer them. No one has ever had the tough questions answered and then suddenly they become a Christian. It's they become a Christian and then when those answers come along, they say, I get it. I see that to be true. But guaranteed, no one has had really hard questions about faith. And you give them these answers from people who went to Oxford, who have you know, theological degrees or went to Harvard and are PhDs. And then you give them those answers, give them these books, and suddenly they say, oh, I believe now because that makes a lot of rational sense. No, it's because the Holy Spirit changes moves. And that happens in God's sovereign will. So prayer is the means, the instrument that God uses in your life to impact and affect others. And he'll, he gives us this privilege to do so, but he does it in his time. And so that might mean one year from today, five years from today, 20 years from today, or as George Mueller found out, even after he died praying over his sons, over 50 years of praying for his son, he died, George Mueller, and his son came to know the Lord after he died. So he never saw his son turn to Christ, but he had that much trace of faith, not in his prayer, but in the God who would be gracious. The only way we do this is if we understand 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your prayer is not in vain. So, Prayer is laborious, but the invitation that you give to those who are around you, whom you love, you care for, God just takes that and he changes hearts and minds sovereignly 
but he gives us the opportunity to be a part of that. So I really appeal to you. If you have a mother or a father, a brother, a sister, a friend, a coworker, and you've been praying and you've given up and you've said, I, I, I don't see the results. It's not happening. Please heed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, be immovable in this. Do not, your labor is not in vain. Pray until you take your last breaths for that person because it is possible that the Lord will change their heart and he is the one. Praise God for that, right? I mean, if it was dependent on us, we, we, it would be hopeless. But I've seen the Lord do tremendous things and he uses you in that way. So we come, we see, and then the last progression of this is that we follow, verses 40 through 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Kephas, which means Peter. When Andrew and Peter began to follow Jesus, they left everything behind. They left their career behind, which was their nets. They left their families behind. But most of all, they left their unbelief behind. Their unbelief. Not everyone who follows Jesus, though, follows Jesus. We're told in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, that there were some people who wanted to follow Jesus. Many people want to follow Jesus, by the way, many. But look at how some respond. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We could spend a lot of time talking about these verses, but the point is that actually these people did not follow Jesus. And we see this in the other gospels. They don't actually follow him. Does Jesus allow us to do some of these very difficult things? If you were to have your loved one die and you need to go to their, you want to go to their funeral and Jesus said, no, you're going to need to follow me first. Would we be able to do it? Now, here's the thing again, is that there are many impediments to following Christ, but I tend to think that there's primarily one fundamental one that each one of us has, and it's unique to that person. It's different. For some, it's money. For some, it's family. For some, it's career. For some, it's, uh, all of it boils down to their own sense of self, like what I think of as the most important person, thing in my life. And it's that one area, again, that the Lord cannot touch. Every area I'm willing to yield, but this is the one area. And I would imagine that for these different people, it was, I want my father. And Jesus knows I'm going to, and this person saying, I need to honor this, this man. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want you to give up. I want you to give up that to follow me. I have no idea whether Jesus would have actually said, all right, you can go and actually bury your father first. I just want to see. Just like Abraham and Isaac. 
The Lord knows the heart, so he knows whether that person would have ever truly given up this heart, this desire of his. Like he knows what you want the most, and he will always call you in different ways to say, are you ready to give this up? And so all of us have some sort of passion, even right now. And what is it that you would say, this is driving my schedule? So the way you look at what is your, the most important thing in your life right now is, how are you budgeting your time and your money? What do you spend most money on in your life? And what do you spend most time on your life? Think about that. Time and money. And whatever you spend most time and money on is probably what you treasure. And then if you think about that, ask that question, then know that Jesus is going to say, I want that. I want you to give me that. Are you willing to completely give it to me? And so when we look at verses 19 through 22 of Matthew 8, and he's saying, this is what I need you to do if you really do this, then you can follow me. It's, it shouldn't shock us that these two people said, I, I don't think I could do that. You know, it's interesting how throughout the Gospels, so many people decide not to follow Jesus. Many people. When we hear of 12 disciples, 72, and then in John chapter 6, we'll find that many people decide not to follow Jesus. It's just constant. And so every time people want to follow Jesus, he's always whittling them away, just sort of like Gideon's army where the Lord is whittling because he doesn't care about what you say you want. It's where your heart is. And so, you know, when Sung was saying nine toes in, one toe out, I would say, the Lord is saying, I want all 10 toes. <laughs> You're not allowed to have one toe uh, out. I want them all. And if you don't, then you will walk away sad, very sad, much sadder than you could ever imagine. The one mistakable, Im un uh, I'm sorry, unmistakable implication of following in this passage is that we follow together. It's inherent in an invitation. It's not, an invitation means you're actually trying to gather people. You're trying to tell people, other people come and follow. So it's not, hey, I'm gonna follow by myself. It's, we're gonna do this together. And we have to be together because it's so much a part of the following is that we continue in this journey because we have other people. And we see this again throughout Paul's letters in the book of Hebrews. The idea that if we don't do this together, we probably won't follow at all. We'll leave him behind. So I'm excited for this retreat. We have 243 people, I think, exactly coming. And we get to follow Jesus together, at least to remind each other for this weekend. It is probably, for our church, the most people we've ever had at a retreat that's a non-interchurch retreat. And we met as uh, small group leaders and as people who are serving this retreat yesterday, praying for all of us. But the thing that we prayed so much about was, Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do because we can do all this stuff and it's important and there's value to it. But unless the Spirit of God changes hearts, no one will turn to him, no one. 
It just doesn't happen. But we get to do this together, and that's a blessing. So I'm excited. I hope you're excited for what is to come in this next couple of weeks. Well, let me conclude with this. We have been invited to this wedding feast. It is not the wedding of the century. It is not the wedding of a millennia. It is the wedding of eternity. Christ, he is our bridegroom. The people, his church, we are the bride. And remember the parable that Matthew 22 begins with? All these different so-called respectable guests, they all said, I'm too busy, I can't come, I can't come. So they're all lost forever. They don't know what they're missing out on. In fact, it's a terrible thing of what they've decided. So then the king says, I want you to go out and invite anyone who comes. So they go out and they gather together thieves and cheaters and murderers and coveters and all sorts of different people. So they all gather into the wedding feast, but they're dressed for the wedding. And then in Matthew chapter 22, verse 12, the king comes into the banquet hall and he sees one person not wearing wedding clothes. And he says, you're not allowed to be here. You shouldn't be here. And he says, guards, throw them out, cast them out. And so he's thrown out with the rest of everyone who had refused to come. What do you think his clothing should have been? It's our clothing. If you are in Christ, you are a former thief, cheater, uh, scoundrel. And you might say, no way. But actually, if you are in Christ, I think all of you say, yeah, that, that was me. We might not have literally done those th- all those things. We might not have physically murdered someone, but according to Jesus, if you are angry in your heart, you've murdered. It's the same heart. And given the same circumstances, that's why if I was born, say, in certain parts of the country or parts of the world, single parent, um, strung up on drugs, do I have the potential to murder? Absolutely. To be a cheater, an adulterer, or a scoundrel, yes. That's me, because that's my heart. And given the right circumstances, I, would, I probably would have done the same thing. And so the Lord says, you, you don't belong here unless you're clothed with something. What are we supposed to be clothed with? Revelation 7.14 gives us the answer. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. This concept of the robes is all throughout the Bible and it's called the robe of righteousness in the Psalms. This concept of being clothed with righteousness, with holiness. You don't get to heaven unless you're perfectly holy. And the only one who is perfectly holy is Christ, perfectly righteous. And what Jesus does at the cross is there's this exchange. The exchange is all of your sin upon him. So the robe of sin is placed on him and he covers you by his blood. The cost is his blood shed with his robe of righteousness. And so when we follow, everyone follows something. You either follow the world, your own glory and but. And you follow that long enough and it will lead you to despair and destruction. It is a really dark road. It's a road of death. At the end of the day, it is death and no one can escape that. But when Jesus says, follow me, it's not follow me to a life of misery and sacrifice and that's it, but it's 
I promise you, as he says in the Gospel of John, abundant joy. I promise you that you, every single thing that your heart longs for, that you crave, that sense of loneliness that you have, it will be filled. I will stay with you. I will remain with you to the very end of the age, as Jesus says in Matthew 28. And there was a cost. The cost is his shed blood. There was a robe, the robe that's put on you, that you are now righteous. When, the God, when our God sees you, when the Father sees you, you're not a sinner. You're a saint. And that's a difference between us and Catholics. We don't believe there is only a select group of people who have achieved sainthood. It is every person who is in Christ is what's called a holy one, which literally what saint means. Someone who is now righteous, perfectly righteous. And that's through the blood of Christ. The invitation is for you. The amazing thing is that it's not something that he just sort of throws out there and says, oh, I hope you come. He knows who's going to come. He knows that because he has paid the price for you and his bloodshed is always effectual. It produces an effect. The spirit of God makes that sure and certain. But he also gives us this opportunity to respond as well. And so he says, come and you will see. And when you follow, you will stay. I will be with you forever. And I will never let you go to the very end of the age. And this table that we share, it is that constant reminder of this invitation. That when you come to this table, you are coming and receiving the invitation saying, thank you, Lord, for always being with me. I'm never alone. And I'm always righteous. So even if I had a miserable week and I got into a terrible fight, and I've cursed out a storm, and I got drunk this week, or I was, whatever it was, you can still come to this table because you come solely on the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that good news? That's why we're excited to every week to be together, to remember that all that God has done for us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, my heart's tendency is to want to follow my own ways. Tend to have such a big view of myself. Too far of a small view of you. But for this invitation that you give to us through your son's shed blood. That brings such assurance. That you will save, as John Newton says, a wretch like me who was once lost and now found. I do pray, O Lord, that those who are in this room would not just simply pass the cross by. Jesus says you hung. May we not be spectators, following from a distance. You always ask us, what do you want? And I pray that we would be able to respond, I want you, Lord, more than anything else in this world. We know that to have you is to have everything. And you will give far more than we can ever ask or imagine. So as we come to this table, may we do so with such joy and delight and thankfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.